PowerPoint is on the Moodle. Um, uh, I'll be speaking to it just from notes this evening, and then you can access it on the Moodle now or um, uh, or later on. Uh, well, I prefer just not to go through slides. It uh, can be a bit uh, distracting. So uh, I think Hans may not have a chance to tell you that uh, I was going to be uh, up talking about disarmament diplomacy this evening. Um, uh, Cherry will be talking uh, next week about China and the uh, one, uh, one road, one path, etc., etc., policy of the Chinese government. Um, and I assume you are all uh, well underway thinking about your uh, dissertation plans uh, under Simon's careful, uh, careful guidance. Um, what I want to do this evening in our hour is to um, help, you, help you think about disarmament as a topic, um, consider it in its uh, historical um, context, uh, look at some of the major agreements and how they've been effective or not. Um, for core readings, I chose uh, an article from the uh, good old bad old days of the uh, 1980s um, called Victory is Possible um, by uh, two uh, one English and one American academic and policy maker who argued that uh, it is possible to, was it indeed possible to aim for victory in thermonuclear war between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union um, so just if you think that all of this was um, you know, a nightmare that nobody ever took seriously um, as it were the antithesis to disarmament the idea of uh, military victory in strategic nuclear warfare um, had uh, and perhaps still has uh, serious, serious traction. Uh, the other article um, is one of mine um, uh, looking at the um, role of a loose term, the global south, that is to say not the US, the Soviet Union and their allies uh, broadly speaking, historically in promoting <coughs> disarmament in the UN system. And I argue there broadly, <coughs> excuse me, um, I argue there broadly that um, the South as a whole is a, um, I have to find something to stop myself choking up the the South as a whole is largely uh, or very significantly ignored in the international relations literature um, and in particular its role in developing norms and treaties in and around the UN system is very largely overlooked uh, and overall that disarmament as a topic is barely analyzed in international relations literature at all. And I give a number of examples of popular journals, at Millennium, for example, which is a, a popular journal of the, uh, at the at London School of Economics, and it has a rotating board of doctoral students. 
uh, going back uh, 40 years or so now. And, <laughs> excuse me, nevertheless, um, for that entire period, I think we found less than 10 articles in book reviews that had the word disarmament in the title, uh, which is um, uh, another one of those silences in the discourse that you'll find I refer to and I did the other day in um, sending out an uh, email with my uh, chocolate box challenge, um, which we'll just stop for a, a moment. Uh, Mr. Martin, uh, to the floor, please. Uh, may I present you with, uh, he's not quite the ambassador's reception. <laughs> um, uh, I asked uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, if people could find uh, articles in the literature on two points. The first of which was uh, what happens in conventional war to civil nuclear reactors. Um, and uh, Dan uh, was the only person who replied. Uh, nobody replied on World War Three, But he, he found some. Um, and I think what he found almost speaks, makes the silence even larger. He found one from the 1980s which discussed the impact, I think, of... Uh, was it an Israeli attack on Iraq? Yeah. Speak up. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it was after the uh, Israeli attack on Iraq and then how that would then affect the nuclear reactors being built in the future and whether they'd have to... Yes, yeah, quite an important topic, you might think. Yeah. Uh, and yet, for one reason or another, uh, the, the academy, as people like to call it, never mind policymakers, but the academy... <coughs> you know, the... International Institute for Strategic Studies, Georgetown, the National Defence University, um, the Royal United Services Institute, Chatham House, none of them uh, have seen fit to publish anything on this topic in the intervening 40 years. Uh, now, I'm not saying it's necessarily a psychological problem or social psychological problem, it might be, but it certainly is a, a point as I've made before and I'll make many times again which is very often what isn't being discussed is more important than what is being discussed. And the political construction of discourses and what's in and what's out means that there's lots of original things for you to write about. Um, it's probably the good, best piece of good news out of that. And the second question, uh, which um, is out there, and I'll um, uh, leave it open until, uh, oh, I don't know, sometime in November anyway, uh, which is to find any academic article, I uh, said since, two, since 2006 in this case, um, discussing uh, World War III, um, you know, how to win it, how to stop it, anything <laughs> uh, World War III related in the academy um, in the last decade. Um, and that, uh, that prize remains. You are permitted to share them, but you can take them home and eat them under the duvet if you want. <laughs> But I should, uh, uh, you, you, and you don't have to wait. Um, <laughs> but he wants, he wants to take him home. Uh, he wants to take him home. Um, he's <coughs> um, counting. Oh, and, and chocolates with nuts in contain nuts, if you have a nut allergy. Um, so, uh, that's, with that uh, uh, brief um, uh, sidebar on, on silences, um, let me get back to the, the silence uh, or lack of it about disarmament in IR. Um, now, um, broadly speaking, as I indicate in my own writing, 
you can't find, except in a few specialist journals, uh, writings about disarmament uh, in, the, in international relations, which is or is not a problem. Uh, you have find a few outliers, Hugh Gustafson, Ken Booth, for example, which isn't to say you don't have a discussion of nuclear weapons, but not, just not of disarmament as a dimension. And broadly speaking, the overwhelming Western debate comes under the word of deterrence, whatever that means or doesn't mean, broadly speaking, um, interpreted as um, people are frightened to attack because they'll be attacked back. That is the, um, the popular understanding of the term. And beneath that overall term of deterrence when it comes to weaponry, what one sees broadly is that over time, um, and I was discussing this with Kevin in uh, New York just last week, you certainly see in the West a, um, a change, I would argue a degradation, but certainly a change, whereas maybe 50 years ago, uh, Western ministries would have had ministries of disarmament. By the late 1960s, they had become ministries of disarmament and arms control. Give it another 10 years, they had become, uh, which is controlling weapons, not getting rid of them, then it had become ministries or departments of non-proliferation, that is, stopping other countries getting them. Uh, and then if they turn into, if you look at the Foreign Office today, they turn into departments of counter-proliferation, which is actively stopping countries getting them, including attacking them. The uh, ill-fated Iraq war being ostensibly a counter-proliferation war, at least that's how it was sold. And I swear there is a sort of a little man or little person who goes around scratching off a gold plate on gold paint on glass doors that originally, you know, they were called disarmament and you keep scratching away and painting in the new ones. And now it's so they're called counter proliferation. It's the counter proliferation department and you don't find uh, disarmament uh, departments anymore. And these terms are political battlegrounds in literature and in politics you'll find um, so this is in our terms discourse analysis the, when one term replaces another uh, in the discourse when the terms are, their me meanings change depending on who's using the terms so for some Arms control is kind of, oh, well, that means disarmament. Whereas, in, excuse me, whereas technically speaking, uh, in general, the meaning is in the, is in the phrase, um, arms control, uh, originating in the American-Soviet uh, confrontations of the, uh, starting in the 1950s and beyond, and then a desire not just to confront, but to get dialogue going. Disarmament was too difficult in general. And so the likes of Kissinger and Nixon and with the Soviet Union started discussing the control of weapons. Um, and various agreements were concluded to achieve that. 
Now, you might think, and I'll just take a few categories of thinking about disarmament um, under the titles of uh, um, what I call FIDE. Um, futile, um, imposed, dangerous, or essential. Maybe some ways that we can treat the topic. Futile, well, broadly speaking, the argument would be you can't stop the military-industrial complex. Uh, whatever they get rid of, they wouldn't want anyway. Um, so there's no point in even trying to control weapons uh, because international monopoly capitalism and the arms industries will uh, continue to produce what they want regardless. So you might as well not bother. Um, imposed uh, it is the idea that disarmament is just something which is imposed by the strong on the weak. After World War I, Germany is banned from <coughs> having weapons and an army and very tightly controlled. Similarly, after World War I, when the British occupied Iraq, in common with fairly standard imperial policy, not just Western, but probably going back to the Assyrians, the defeated people, uh, the occupied people of Iraq were forbidden to have weapons. And indeed, the British Army regulations of the time specify that after the uh, amnesty period of 1920, if a single bullet is found in an Iraqi village, then the British uh, military should raise the village to the, gr to the ground. Um, in a process that was specified as should not take longer than six hours. It doesn't say anything about the people, uh, but everything in the village was to be destroyed if a single uh, a weapon or bullet uh, was found. Now, that's the uh, disarmament of, of the victor, uh, which is not, I guess, what I'm talking about um, in the main this evening. And then there's the argument which you find from people such as Colin Gray and others, which is disarmament is positively dangerous. Um, indeed, you find it at the micro level with, in the discussion of the shooting in Las Vegas, not at the international level, but at the micro level, where the defenders of gun control said, ah, oh, well, that part of Las Vegas was a, a gun-free zone, and if only they'd been able to shoot back, then you know, the massacre wouldn't have happened. Um, that, in essentially, is the argument. Um, from the 1930s, people said, oh, well, we disarmed. Uh, the Nazis didn't. War resulted. Um, the other argument is that if you prepare for war, you get war. And that, that is the, uh, the position I tend to share. Uh, what I said in another forum here a few weeks ago um, is, the, as it were, the Einstein view, which is that everything is changed with the bomb except for the way we think. Namely, that getting into a major conflict uh, is so self-destructive. Uh, now, you can see it's self-destructive on the ground if you happen to live in, in Syria right now. Um, it's hugely self-destructive as a society. But at the global level, at the level between major states, uh, it is argued that the lessons of two world wars and of the bomb is that it is uh, too self-destructive to contemplate major conflict. And this, I would say, you find underpinning the 
discussions about North Korea, um, Iran, that, well, yes, uh, it's terrible they're doing it. We're not prepared to talk about our weapons, but, and you might think this is progress, the Americans haven't actually launched preemptive nuclear war on Tehran, whereas empires perhaps of the you know, medieval period or even the last century wouldn't have thought uh, twice about um, massacring a huge numbers of people. Indeed, you know, go back eight centuries and Genghis Khan did quite well without the benefit of gunpowder. Um, so what is the restraint? Well, the restraint may be that we're all just nicer people, but part of that is the driver that uh, at a certain a large scale, the only way to win, as the movie put it, is not to play. And in that respect, the disarmament agenda makes a, a realist sense rather than an idealist sense from that perspective. Now, switching gears from Western governments, Western international relations scholarship, if you think about a disarmament that has occurred, and particularly in the UN system, what you see is actually disarmament has been an important part of international and interstate politics for a century at least. Um, Ash Cox uh, is fond of talking about the uh, agreements on battleships reached by the British and the Americans in the 1920s. An established power, the British Empire, a rising power, the United States. Realist theory would say they should go to war. In fact, they reached an agreement uh, to limit their weapons so they wouldn't fight each other, partly because they were concerned about other threats uh, and perhaps also for cultural and political reasons between the two, uh, between the two powers. In the post-war period, the first decisions of the United Nations were about controlling weapons and indeed urging restraint and control of nuclear weapons when the UN first met in the General Assembly down the road uh, in Westminster uh, back in 45. Of course, these issues were kept extremely tight to uh, the control of states and state leaders. And this brings me into one of the guiding issues for, for this evening, which is about summits. Um, Winston Churchill is credited, I think, with inventing the term um, uh, and nowadays that has become you know, the people who help you climb to the, to the summit of Everest are Sherpas, the people who live in, in Nepal and so you know, the jargon of any uh, international body to prepare for the summit, you have meetings of Sherpas now is the term for political advisors, uh, you may uh, become such uh, in a few years and why do you need to get, as it were, the bosses involved, the heads of state? Broadly speaking, because what's at stake for individual nations is so high that it can't be delegated. The reason for having um, summitry is also, and I'll talk about this a little, is also because 
particularly in times of crisis, national leaders often don't trust their own people. And to give one example, there was a, you can find it um, on the internet if you brought your devices, there's a summit uh, around the end of the Cold War, I think 1989, uh, between Bush Senior and Gorbachev. And at the summit, um, Bush Senior thinks it's a good idea to have another summit. But such is the political sensitivity that he doesn't even use his own American translator. He doesn't tell anybody in his own government. Not a soul. Not his Secretary of Defence. Um, uh, not the Secretary of State. Not the head of the CIA. And this is Bush, who senior, who has had all these jobs. He's had all these jobs himself. So he knows how the system works. Uh, he doesn't trust anybody. He just uses the Soviet translator. And um, they arrange another summit to take place in, and they agree to have it in Malta. Quite why, I don't know. They all get terribly seasick because uh, they arranged to have it on boats in December. Nobody told them what the Mediterranean was like, I guess. And they had to decamp from their boats rather seasick and find some uh, villas um, in Valletta to have the summit on um, to, avoid, to avoid the storm. But nevertheless, uh, and it's a very successful summit dealing with uh, reductions in nuclear weapons. But I take this as an example that um, when issues are incredibly important to the survival of states, to the survival of regimes, there being a difference, of course, between, as it were, the elite in the state at a particular, particular time and the nation itself, or the state itself, and indeed the political prospects of individuals, then leaders very often don't trust anybody, if they even trust themselves, um, from time to time. And I think if you look around, I mean, I wonder kind of what is on the, you know, how far, um, you know, Theresa May is actually having quiet, uh, on a very parochial English uh, concern here, uh, how far, you know, she's having very private conversations uh, because she clearly doesn't trust her own side. Um, and, you know, Chancellor Merkel, if you look at that situation, also has internal problems in Germany. So sometimes the dialogue between leaders can be used to benefit each other, their own domestic situations. And this isn't just about disarmament, but in many issues, when you think about uh, summits and interests and negotiations, so for example, I mean, I don't know if any of you are doing Harold's disarm, uh, energy climate class, excuse me, but when you turn up at a, uh, a summit on uh, climate change, the environment ministries of all the countries tend to have more in common with each other than they do with their own industrial ministries or the finance ministries. Uh, and in the same way also there are alliances with civil society, with government departments, with other governments. And that is um, a pattern you should think about in any, of the, uh, any topic that you are uh, analysing um, from the diplomatic perspective. That this idea of, um, as it were, of 
formal, self-contained state structures is fine and very often applies and you might argue certainly in democracies that you know, officials should follow the democratic leadership even if they disagree with it and I think again to be parochial you see that with um, the Brexit negotiations the civil service probably to a man or woman think it's a mad idea but nevertheless they're doing it because that's the, the policy and the need to go along with it but on disarmament, where it's an issue of literally, during the Cold War, life and death, these issues were kept extremely tight to uh, national leaderships and national leaders, and certainly uh, very often um, members of the public were certainly about, about the last people to be um, involved and consulted. And these summits, which gained some prominence that was during the Second World War. Uh, there were only two meetings of Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin during the war, all three of them, more between Stalin and uh, Churchill and many more between Churchill and Roosevelt. But the big three was only a couple of times. And then during the Cold War, these meetings between the Soviet and American leadership got huge attention and publicity, what hung on them. And in the end, you had a... Um, uh, almost that meetings were held for their own sake to, to uh, assuage public opinion just because they're met. When I first went to Washington lobbying in the 1980s, there was an heroically, I'm being slightly ironic here, heroically named uh, organization, uh, fe uh, feminist organization. Uh, this tells you about the political pressures of the Cold War. It was called Women for Meaningful Summits. Okay, tells you all you need to know, really. Please do something real <coughs> and not just a photo op. Um. <coughs> the international system as a whole, the UN system, um, peace and security and disarmament is right up there as one of the key functions of the organisation. Now, this doesn't mean as I say, that this is reflected in uh, the State Department or the, uh, <coughs> or the British Foreign Office. But nevertheless, the, the function of disarmament remains a key pillar of the UN system, dating from the last time we got it all wrong, um, some 70 years ago. And there is, uh, in the UN system, subordinate to the General Assembly... Uh, there are several main subcommittees on which all states um, sit. And one of them, the Peace and Security Committee, Committee 1, is almost entirely devoted to the issue of disarmament. Now, you wouldn't know it picking up the newspapers. Uh, it meets uh, annually for about a month after the big uh, razzmatazz um, that... Um, uh, Trump and all the other national leaders go to uh, as an annual meeting at the end of, um, uh, end of September every year. But that disarmament forum, uh, for example, produced the Arms Trade Treaty. It produced the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Uh, and most recently, it produced the, um, the Nuclear Ban Treaty. 
um, of which our group here at SOAS was a tiny part. Those structures exist as interactions of major groups of states. So when it came to the Ban Treaty, all the states that were associated with China, Russia, Britain, France, United States, the P5, nuclear weapon states, all boycotted the talks. They said it's the wrong time, it's the wrong place, we're not ready. We don't want to get into the nuclear ban discussion. It's all propaganda. Uh, they didn't turn up at all, except uh, as an outlier, the Netherlands, as a NATO state, did take part, really kind of as an observer, as just kind of a, um, a tiny little pinky link uh, between the weapon states and their allies, and broadly speaking, the non-aligned movement with a few... Uh, countries, particularly Austria from, from Western Europe, in moving that process forward. Now, to take the Ban Treaty as an example, um, most um, realists and you know, moderates on the issue pretty much thought it was, and probably still do, think it was a terrible idea. We had an excellent discussion not so long ago with the uh, former official and academic Scott Sagan and Adam Roberts uh, from Oxford, uh, former head of the British Academy, um, of which they basically sat across the road in Senate House and gently patronised the hell out of the idea of the Ban Treaty, uh, that it was a bad idea, it would be destabilising, you shouldn't do something that, uh, that none of the weapon states wanted. Um, and nevertheless really born a frustration from the lack of progress, you had countries who hadn't got nuclear weapons and weren't likely to get them coming together and saying, well, here's a norm. Here's a legal norm for a ban, and we're going to establish this, and let's see what happens. Well, one thing that happened was that the Nobel Committee, perhaps smarting from having given Barack Obama the Nobel for, for peace, who didn't, then didn't deliver on anything, um, gave it to um, our friends in ICANN. So you had sort of four 20-something, 30-something young people suddenly have got Nobels. Uh, well, that's a game-changer in itself in terms of the politics. And suddenly the Ban Treaty is something which starts to become much more debated. It doesn't mean that the weapon states uh, are going to... Um, abandon their weapons, give up their weapons, but it changes to some extent the political dynamic. And part of what I think it, that they draw upon and we draw upon is that uh, over this period um, of the last 70 years, uh, what is forgotten is there have been a very large number of agreements controlling and banning weapons of all kinds. Um, so and very, there's been very large impact of international civil society and protest groups. Um, in the 1960s, um, in the, uh, sort of the, on, the dawn of the, uh, the Summer of Love and, uh, and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, um, at that point, hundreds of nuclear weapons were being test-fired in the atmosphere to see if they worked, uh, and also as a kind of 
uh, school kid kind of macho, I can blow up a bigger one than you can. Um, it wasn't a question of North Korea thinking about they might blow up one in the Pacific. The, you know, the Americans uh, were blowing them up, and the French uh, were blowing them up in the Pacific um, dozens of times a year in the atmosphere, and the Soviet Union as well. This was part of everyday life, um, that nuclear weapons were being exploded, partly because of the PR, but also because, oh, uh, Strontium-90 started turning up in cow's milk, um, that the radiation, the global radiation impact of atmospheric nuclear testing was starting to produce uh, short-term active um, radionuclides in um, what babies were drinking. And, you know, the public, growing public reaction around, around that theme produced mass protests. It didn't stop nuclear testing. I guess it put a damper on it. They went underground. underground. And hundreds of nuclear weapons still continued to be exploded and through, all the way through until uh, 1996, when there was finally a multilateral agreement to stop setting off nuclear weapons to see how well they worked. Now, that's 20 years ago now, so it's hard for you to imagine. It was an active part of my life, and that are the campaigns and analysis that I was involved in in the early part of my career. Um, but it's hard to imagine now uh, where we get terribly upset if Korea <coughs> excuse me, does one or two. And shortly after the 1996 ban, you had <coughs> a few explosions by India, India and Pakistan. But broadly speaking, and despite what may or may not be done by computer simulation, the states with weapons have stopped uh, test firing them, and this inhibits the weapons developers, who otherwise would ha always have new ideas for new exotic forms of weaponry to, to set off. In parallel, uh, initially at US-Soviet uh, level, there were a series of agreements which resulted in, not just first of all in the control of particular weapons types, but in the end with um, agreements to physically cut up missiles. Didn't get as far as, as it were, the warheads, the bit that go bang. They were uh, left out of the verification procedures, but the checking procedures meant that states had to literally cut up their missiles, cut up their rockets, um, and show the other side that they'd done so. And indeed, according to the procedures, or not much publicized, certainly in America, um, you had to put up signs in Cyrillic script in Russian on their missile bases telling the Russian inspectors where to go. This is a fairly high level of, of intrusion in a highly paranoid society, and vice versa. Similarly, in Europe at this period, now, uh, people such as Colin Gray would say these were agreements that were only reached after the conflict was settled. They were agreements only um, imposed by the West on the defeated Soviet Union, uh, and that therefore the idea that these processes help create political change should be discarded. That's the, the critic's view. <clears throat> certainly from personal experience, it didn't look that way at the time. And certainly 
if you look at statements by the American government, the, you know, the Soviet Union was dead and buried and they were still talking about the Soviet Union. Um, I think George Bush Sr.'s policy was called status quo plus at the end of the Cold War. They were uh, highly reluctant to acknowledge any change was taking place in this period, publicly and privately. But that was one of the problems Bush had in his negotiations with Gorbachev, was that most of his bureaucracy wouldn't accept that any change was happening. So I would argue that this idea that this is all after the case or just uh, ratifying victory was not the case in that period, that actually there was a, uh, a synergy between political action uh, on weapons and political change. But the two went hand in hand. And that the ability of the two sides to get increasing agreements on weapons made the political change more possible, and vice versa. But by the end of that period, uh, West and East had reached agreements which resulted in weapons of the types you now see being used indiscriminately in wars on our television screens, tanks, helicopters, uh, warplanes, artillery guns. Tens of thousands of these were literally sawn up and scrapped as part of these agreements. And I think it's, from our perspective, from my perspective, it's important to realize, particularly at a time when change appears extremely difficult, um, uh, that it seems uh, hard to see a way forward uh, to actually realize that there's a whole um, set of experiences of successful negotiations at a multilateral level and successful uh, agreements to control weapons of almost all kinds, uh, rather than simply looking rather like rabbits in the headlights and looking at um, oncoming crises and not realizing that it's possible to do um, to do anything different. I'm not going to run through all the, uh, the different types of agreements. They're headlined on, <coughs> excuse me, on the PowerPoint. Um, and there are many links to uh, UN and other publications detailing the different forms of agreement. But I should um, touch on one or two. Um, one of the, certainly in the West, the most important is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, from, well, it's a proliferation treaty, it's not a disarmament treaty. Oh yes it is, oh no it isn't, depending on who you talk to. Um, the oh yes it is um, crew will talk to the famous Article 6 of the NPT, which says that uh, the states shall uh, carry out effective measures for nuclear disarmament, comma, and achieve general disarmament. And the amount of political battles that are fought over the comma are, does nuclear only happen uh, after you control all weapons? Do they happen together? Or do you deal with nuclear first? This, uh, this isn't just a question of, of language, it's a question of high politics. Uh, the Russians just last week issued a statement saying, oh, nuclear can only happen Never mind the ban treaty. Nuclear can only happen after a treaty on everything. And certainly the we weapon states, the countries with it, 
more or less, and I make this in a rather derogatory way, that it's only when everybody you know, believes in peace and love, fairies and Father Christmas, that we have had the conditions that are right to get rid of nuclear weapons. Uh, and others say, well, nuclear weapons are so totally awful and dangerous and the world will blow up if we get it wrong, that we have to deal with them first. You make your own choice and indeed discuss uh, amongst yourselves as to whether it's even desirable um, to try. The MPT, which was developed in the 1960s out of a then US-Soviet desire, as it were, to stop other people getting into the game. Uh, at the time, they thought there would be maybe 20 or 30 nuclear weapon states by round about now. And in fact, we have between five and eight or nine, depending on how you do the counting. So arguably, these uh, efforts at political norm control uh, and political measures to reinforce that have been moderately effective. There was a time when both Brazil and Argentina uh, were developing active nuclear programs, similarly in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, at the very least, Sweden, um, Taiwan, and South Korea all had active we nuclear weapons programs in, under development, which then, for reasons of state diplomacy with their allied partners um, the, and their own uh, national publics, all stopped and drew back. South Africa, and I think some of you will know that we have our ambassador in residence, Abdul Minty, coming uh, in reading week to do individual sem seminars. A remarkable man, if I may say, on the side. As a student uh, from South Africa at Leeds University in 1960, he was a founder of the anti-apartheid uh, movement. He ended uh, his career as Deputy Secretary General of the South African uh, Multilateral Affairs Department in Pretoria, and is the longest-serving member of the International Atomic Energy Agency. And what led him in that path? Well, as a researcher, he was the person who discovered, outside the government, who discovered that South Africa was developing nuclear weapons as part of his uh, anti-apartheid researches. Uh, and again, there's a, a note for you about uh, the importance of the fine print. Uh, there was a vague phrase in the statement in the, the mid-1960s, I think, he'll tell you the detail, by the head of the uh, South African uh, Atomic Energy Commission in which he talked of um, the use of nuclear weapons in civil and other, for civil and other uses. I may have not got the words exactly right, but of course he fixated on, well, what are the other uses if they're not civil? And out of that uh, one, uh, that one phrase, uh, became, he had developed his research project. The end of the apartheid regime, um, uh, he oversaw the dismantling of South Africa's nuclear weapons program. Now you can say, well, were they mad? Should they have hung on to their weapons? Would South Africa be a stronger country together today? Or would actually that have accelerated Nigeria and Egypt to have, so that South Africa wasn't the only state on the continent with nuclear weapons? You can make your, your own judgment. So in the, so the post-war period, there's 
arguably a significant uh, effect of non-proliferation. Now, the flip side was when we get to a crisis in the MPT, uh, uh, as I say, a slow, very slow-moving crisis um, comes with the uh, the problem that the states that signed up to never get the bomb uh, did so on the understanding that the states with it would get rid of it. And while you know there have been reductions in numbers from uh, uh, maybe thirty thousand each for the uh, Russians and the Americans down to maybe five, ten thousand each. Uh, after all, it only took two nuclear weapons to bring Japan to its knees. How many do you really need? Uh, one might ask. Um, but as a result of those processes, it became more, become more and more clear to uh, non-weapon states uh, that they have to find new ways of pressuring or developing uh, political processes to engage the nuclear weapon states. Uh, and it isn't helped. You can, you, there are, again, this is, one, this is one of these issues, excuse me, this is one of these issues uh, about which a certain amount is written, but perhaps not enough. Uh, the, one of the measures of the recent Bush administration, Bush Jr., was to reach out to India in classic IR terms to develop India as a bulwark against China. And one of the, re one of the ways in which uh, the US did this was to sign a huge uh, agreement to develop India's civil nuclear weapons program. Now, India isn't a member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Clearly, it's developed nuclear weapons. Um, and always argued the Non-Proliferation Treaty was discriminatory. And he wouldn't sign it for that very reason. Um, but it acted um, on its views, and then Pakistan followed um, very shortly afterwards in the 1990s. So there's India, a nuclear weapon state, and it's broadly been rewarded by the United States, one of the originators of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, with a huge investment in its civil nuclear weapons program. Now, there are learned theses, not least by my old friend George Perkovich at Carnegie, about how civil that civil nuclear weapons program is, how far there is a crossover between the civil and the military. What I would say broadly is that if you want, it's much more difficult to develop nuclear weapons if you don't have an infrastructure of nuclear reactors, technology, and scientists at the simplest, and then you can look at particular technologies. <coughs> um, I'll end in the last few minutes just with two broad themes of uh, disarmament and weapons control. One, as it were, the small weapons, and then to end up the... Um, the issues of Iran and North Korea. And that's sort of a, I suppose, about four minutes each. Um, so it'll be a bit of a gallop. Broadly speaking, in the West, uh, amongst Western leaderships and foundations, there was a huge sigh of relief at the end of the Cold War. We didn't have to worry about uh, big weapons in disarmament. But look around the world. It's landmines that are killing everybody. It's small weapons. 
And so you had a developing world, Western civil society campaigns, first of all, to uh, control landmines, and then that became anti-personnel landmines. And you got a treaty which, again, involves lots of countries, perhaps not the, uh, some of those that um, uh, most want to use landmines. Um, the Finnish government, which has a large border with Russia, uh, traditionally populated them with landmines to keep the Red Army out. It's recently signed the Landmines, landmines Ban Treaty against a narrow version of what its realist interest would be. The narrow version would be it needs landmines. The, um, the Russians might be coming, um, but it's taken a broader view of its, uh, of its state interest. And this process then moved on to uh, see if similar coalitions of non-governmental organizations, some Western countries and developing world states to develop efforts to control the arms trade, although the British courts have so far decided that it's okay for the Brits to sell them to Saudi Arabia for Yemen, and that isn't a violation, uh, despite the uh, interest groups, uh, interventions in the courts, and also to develop a program of action. I've been involved in these coalitions myself when I was in the NGO world, to develop a program of action to control small arms, that is, handheld weapons. And actually, despite, I think, I was very cynical when we got an agreement that was so watered down in 2000, but actually today there are processes in place more and more in Africa to, for example, to make sure that weapons have identifying serial numbers and marks on them. So that they're sold or transferred from one state to another. If a, uh, a militia breaks into a barracks in Kenya and ships them to Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone Ghana, these are identifiable bits of kit. And the heads of state and governments can be confronted with their armaments and shown what their responsibilities are. And talking to people on the ground in the UN in uh, West Africa, with whom we're developing a project now with Oxfam, they see this makes a real difference to the way in which armaments are being used on the ground. You can't say, and in, there are um, numerous instances that you can find of uh, buyback schemes, um, other schemes where governments collect in weapons bring them out of civil society, and they are not just immediately replaced by newer, shinier versions. We're going back to the military-industrial complex uh, thesis. <coughs> and indeed, in the end, many of these coalitions were then brought into and saw the sense of being involved in the nuclear ban treaty. Um, well, I'll close, though, with... Um, Iran, um, and uh, just to say a word on Korea, I'm pleased to say that we um, will be having a specialist seminar um, on Korea with uh, um, Hazel Smith um, from SOAS with Si Tsang, who um, leads our China Institute, and hopefully one of uh, uh, your classmates uh, who uh, had the experience of growing up in the country, which will be on the 12th of uh, December. Um, the 
the dynamics with Korea are extremely complex, and I will talk more about them in December. But I think what's interesting is, first of all, that the United States hasn't got around um, to destroying North Korea by preemptive war. You know, if you subscribe to a traditional realist approach, both with Iran and, um, and North Korea, that's kind of what you'd expect to happen. And a country is developing a weapon that would threaten it, uh, would threaten another country. It isn't able to do it yet, so just get on with it. And certainly there are lobbies to do that in, um, <coughs> excuse me, there are lobbies to do that in um, United States and elsewhere. And it's all important also to realize that from that, those countries' perspective, it may make perfect sense. The only way to defend yourself against the United States is to get nuclear weapons. If you're Iranian, well, who talks about the Israeli bomb? Not many people in the West. Uh, Israel's got it. We should have it in Iran. And to be frank, if you're Iranian, if I was Iranian with 6,000 years of history and my near neighbor is Pakistan, which has got the bomb and didn't exist as a country, 60 years ago, um, well, we've been going for, I don't know how many more centuries than they have, you know, as a stable culture and country. Why shouldn't we have it? These are perfectly good arguments uh, until you introduce, as it were, the Einstein dilemma and until um, you introduce the question of, well, if they have it, how many people are going to have it? Is the world safe if everybody gets it? No. Well, why not? because at the end of the day, it might all go horribly wrong. And this dilemma of traditional narrow state interest from the pre-atomic era and the post-World War, post-atomic uh, understanding of cooperation being essential for survival, these two dynamics are those that drive inter international politics on disarmament, they drive dialogue within states, and I think arguably they drive dynamics in our own thinking. You know, should we give it up? Will we be vulnerable? Do I want to keep safe as an individual, as a country? These are very real issues. They're not theoretical ones that concern us all. Um, the reason I would say, objectively, in a university which looks to develop southern um, and respect southern perspectives and not just replicate northern ones is that in the northern dialogue certainly in the northern academy disarmament is virtually invisible and I think that's a problem if I was running a western intelligence agency I would think it's a problem that there's such a blinkered um, academic world because actually from an intelligence agency's perspective you need to have a broader view, set a broader set of views but certainly from a university such as this that aspires to have a truly global perspective and not one that just says it is um, while sitting in the north, then these are views that need airing and that we need to uh, give space to that whole pillar of the UN system and what's associated with it, which is disarmament rather than to uh, a more militarised northern discourse. So that in a nutshell is... Um, uh, is the lecture, uh, why uh, we think it matters, 
and you're very welcome to talk to me after the lecture. Um, informally, we didn't have to all rush off, and the slides are on the website. Thank you. Yeah, I will. Or you can just post them yourself. Yeah, I will do. Great. Okay.